Hello, my beautiful Substack folks, subscribers here at parttimefunnyman.com. It's your boy, Corey Ryan Forster. We are doing an Ask Corey Anything. I got a lot of responses. I'm going to try to get to all of them, but if I can't, then I'm just going to have to do a part two. Hope you're having a wonderful day. And here we go. Just Let's just go ahead and start firing them off. Jessica at Yoga Jessica wants to know, how many pairs of kicks have you already bought for the baby? Uh, that's a fair question. My wife actually has already bought, I think she's bought our baby boy like four pairs already. Uh, most of which are practical baby shoes that a normal mother would buy for their child. Of course, as you know, I'm a big sneakerhead. And what I'm planning on doing is basically picking out my top 10 favorite shoes that I have and trying to find matching shoes for my boy because I'm going to be that dude. I'm going to dress this little son of a bitch up like me so much and take pictures. I'm going to be annoying with it. So right now, the answer is four, but it's going to get it's going to get ridiculous, I promise. Oh, my old buddy Warren Allen Tidwell says, uh, not funny exactly, but how do you deal with elitism you encounter from folks outside of the South when you discuss being from there? Has a continued effort against it helped as you've toured, or is it a pretty consistent thing? Oh my God, dude. Yeah, it's a consistent thing. Most people genuinely don't know that they're doing that. I don't think, like, I'll give you a couple examples. Whenever we tour outside the South, for some reason, people seem to have this belief that I don't like where I come from just because I criticize it. And, like, that could not be further from the truth. Like, I still live in my hometown in Georgia in a rural part of it in a very red district, and if I didn't like it here, or if I didn't love the people here, I don't have to live here. I can literally live anywhere that I want to live. Like, I'm a comedian. It's not like, oh, no, my job is here. Actually, if we're being honest, it actually doesn't benefit me at all to live here for my career, except for the fact that during the pandemic, we all realized that we can do everything remotely. But, like, I actually kind of hinder my career by living here because there's a lot of th opportunities that I don't get because, you know, it's like, oh, if you lived in LA, we'd, we'd call you and have you come over to the studio. But like, if we're talking about flying you out and do it, like it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's more of a burden. Now I love the uh, property value and stuff here. And I love that, like I, living here, I don't have to engage in near as much hustle culture as someone else in my same field does because I don't need as much money to pay my bills and my mortgage and stuff. I mean, I still bust my ass because I because I love it, but like, there's a lot more breathing room. But yeah, people seem to think that like me, Trey, and Drew don't like where we're from, and they'll start shitting on it, thinking that they're commiserating with us or thinking that that's going to endear them to us. And it is just such the opposite. I remember one time we were in San Francisco, and this woman came up, and she's like, "Oh my God, you guys are so funny." She's like, "I." I drove through the South one time, and just driving through it, I wanted to kill myself. To which Trey responded, well, I hear y'all have a nice bridge for that out here. And the woman was like, well, what are you talking about? And then this one other lady asked Trey, she's like, hey, so you said that you got your MBA. Like, how did you get to school? And he's like, what do you, I mean, I drove. And she's like, no, but like, how did you, how did you get there? It was so far beyond her comprehension that somebody from where we're from could actually get to college like in their brain everybody here is an uneducated dumb sack of shit it's like they it's like to them mark twain and and 
Faulkner and none of these people existed. Martin Luther King, Andre 3000, it's like none of these people ever existed. Usually, when I'm faced with this, if it's like in a meet and greet situation after a show, like I just kind of smile and get on with it because, frankly, I'm trying to keep the line moving. And, and if I had to if I had to go out of my way to, um, to point it out every single time, we'd be there for hours and hours and hours. But I don't know. I think you just learn to let it go. Uh, when, now, if I've had a couple beers and I'm on Twitter and somebody starts spouting off some bullshit, you know, I'll go in. And it's funny because it's, it's almost like I'm proving them right. They're like, yeah, I called him a dumb redneck, and now look at him being a dumb redneck. It's infuriating. But the thing that pisses me off the most is when someone thinks that I'm anti-South. That nothing makes me more mad. Like, I'm not. I'm anti-gerrymandering. I'm anti the established way of thinking that the GOP has, which has a, a stranglehold on the South. I'm against all that stuff, but I be anti-South? Bro, I love it here. These are my people, and we're not all like that. And, like, we're way not all like that, and it is, um, yeah, it really pisses me off when people from anywhere else are like, well, you're just one of the good ones. And, I mean, it's hard to act like, my career wasn't catapulted by a lot of people thinking that, but yeah, it, uh, it really don't hit. <laughs> so I just kind of shake it off and know that those people are, um, idiots. My buddy, John, uh, paint monkey. Oh, paint monkey. Y'all got, y'all got to follow, follow John, uh, at paint monkey art. He does a lot of our drawings for the well-read podcast. He is absolutely tremendous. He asks, I know I heard you talk about Foxworthy, but how much of an influence was Louis Grizzard on you as a Southern comic? He was pretty ubiquitous when I was growing up, but since he died early, I was curious how big an impact he had, if at all. I really wish that this was a video podcast so you could see that I'm pointing to my stack of Louis Grizzard books over here on my bookshelf. Um, you know, when I first started in comedy, I, it was hard for me to understand that there, like to me, stand up was the only type of comedy. So if you weren't a stand up comedian, I didn't really consider you a comedian, which is just so not true. That's like saying Will Ferrell's not a comedian. That's insane. But so Louis Grizzard, I, I, my dad was the biggest fan when I was a kid, and I'm only just now really getting into him because I did this thing that kids often do, which is. If my dad or, you know, any of your parents are super into something, then you know that it must suck. And, of course, that's never, well, that's not always the case. But I didn't really read a lot of them when I was a kid. There would be, like, you know, he wrote for the Atlanta Journal-Constitutions, and some of those clippings would, like, go old-school viral, which is means, you know, laminated and passed around to school <laughs> and shit like that. And uh, Dad would tell me all his jokes and his stories and stuff, and, and, and I laughed at him. But I'm just now really getting the influence of Louis Grizzard, like... When I write stuff here at parttimefunnyman.com, uh, so much of his influence and Rick Braggs. And, and first off, I'm not even a tenth as good as either of those dudes are, but like I am super, super entertained by them and super influenced by it because the thing that Louis Grizzard did so well, he was so funny at taking something that wasn't a big moment at all and still writing about it as if it was, if that makes sense. Like when I was starting out writing and doing comedy, I was like, you have to have this big idea, and there has to be this huge plot, and there has to be a twist or whatever. And then you got guys like 
Louis Grizzard and David Sedaris who can make an entire, you know, 10-page short story out of just them going to the beauty shop with their grandmother or them going to check the mail and it's entertaining. And so there's a lot of inspiration now that I'm an adult through reading Louis Grizzard's work. And, and I know a lot of people probably will go, well, Louis Grizzard was a little problematic. Yes, yes, he was. Uh, but he is dead, and I got all these books at McKay's, so don't worry about it. <laughs> it's okay. I can, uh, I can separate the art from the artist. But yeah, I mean, you already mentioned this, John, but Foxworthy was probably the biggest, biggest influence just in terms of, like, I always say that I got my comedic timing from people like Mel Brooks and Bugs Bunny. Like, those are like my two idols. But, like, Foxworthy was the guy. I've said this a lot, so I'm probably repeating myself to a lot of you. But Foxworthy was the guy that let me know that someone with my accent could do this. You know what I mean? Like, before Foxworthy, I thought comedians were built in a factory in Los Angeles and New York. And then here's a guy who sounds and looks just like my uncle. Oh, my God. I think I can make my dreams come true. Oh, my good buddy, Bojangles champion, Mr. Jay-Z Flair, says, What is your go-to biscuit recipe? I don't actually have one. I usually just holler at my mama. My granny made the best biscuits in the world. I'll just go to Hardee's or, you know, if I'm near one, Jay-Z, I'll go to a Bojangles. But I'll tell you what I'm about to start hollering at. You know, you boys been on a bit of a health kick trying to change my life and uh, turn my life around. And there's a thing called Carb Quick, which is like Bisquick, but like 90% less carbs. And I make a cheese biscuit with them. I can't remember the recipe because I just kind of throw shit in there. And, dude, it is surprisingly, insanely good and uh, completely guilt-free. So my go-to biscuits are carb-quick biscuits. And I know that somebody's going to take my southern card from me <laughs> just for saying that I want a, uh, a lower-carb biscuit. But, you know, I kind of just, I do right now. Okay, I have lost my shit. Okay, here it is. Here it is. Uh, Aaron Hudson. Hey, Aaron, a longtime uh, Twitter follower. If you could switch lives with somebody for one day, who would it be and why? Also, is there any podcast you haven't been a guest on but would love to be? I could probably answer this with one person. Uh, Dan Lebitard. I would love to switch places with Dan Lebitard and see what it's like running a podcast network and like a studio because that's sort of like what I want to be. The and and to answer the second question, I would love to go on the Dan Lebitard podcast because it's my favorite podcast. I love sports, and I think he just does it the complete right way. But I think that I want the next chapter of my life to be more at home in a studio, putting out. I hate this word, but content. Like I want to have multiple podcasts. I want to do audio dramas that I both write, produce, uh, edit, all that stuff. And I would love to switch places with somebody like Dan, a Dan Lebitard or a Bill Simmons. You know, these dudes who are like media giants and their platform ha has not come from being a stand-up comedian or, or an actor. They're just like, they're media guys. I'm really interested in that because it's something that I want to do. And I'm very aware that like, dude, it took me... 12 years of doing stand-up before I ever got recognized and started making money. So I know good and well it's not like I can just jump into this. Like, this is a thing I'm going to have to grind at and learn and get better because, you know, all due respect to them, like, it, it's very difficult, and I can't expect to just, you know, come in uh, crushing it. It is good for me that I already have a platform, so, like, I'm not starting from zero. But I would love to switch lives with those guys to see if that's – 
if the process of all that is actually something that would make me happy because I think that uh, I think that it would like to stay at home more. But uh, uh, on another note, I'll be, I'm thinking about this question now. I might want to switch places with Trump. And let me tell you why. <laughs> Number one, I mean, it's not like the guy doesn't have an awesome life. He's super rich. He gets to do whatever he wants. But also, if I could switch places with Trump for one day, I would know all of the stuff that he's done. And then I could come and report back. Or I could just, while being Trump, I could walk out on a balcony and just go, I did it. I did it all. Throw me in jail. So that wouldn't be a bad one. Uh, you'd have to, there'd be a lot of stuff up there that I wouldn't be able to erase from my memory if I had to swim around in Trump's psyche for a while, but that wouldn't be a bad one. But I'm going to go with like a Dan Lebitard or like, oh, or like a Howard Stern, you know, see what, just see what it's like to sit behind a microphone all day and see if that would make me as happy as, um, as I think it would. Uh, at Shimodi. S-H-M Ashmody What kind of rednecks did you meet in the British Isles? Man, we met some of the reddest some bitches you have ever seen Uh, Mainly in Scotland, I will say In Scotland, they are very much like the the rednecks we have here at home They're working class, they're at the bar They're talking shit about their wife They're loud, they're cursing They're throwing shit at the TV because of football um, so p- plenty in London, you know, everybody was pretty proper and posh. It was sort of like being in, in like your New York or your Chicago or something like in the city where everybody, you know, shirt tucked in, neat haircut. But once you got out into, you know, the other areas and especially Scotland, like buddy, there, there are just as much, if not more rednecks over there than we got here. And if you've ever seen movies like, you know, the Green Street hooligans or even the Kingsman like Eggy and all his friends. Like, there's a lot of them sons of bitches there. And you don't always think when someone has a British accent, British people have the opposite problem that Southern people do. So I wouldn't even call it a problem. If you're a really smart person, but you have a Southern accent, people will think you're dumb. And over there, if you're a really dumb person, but you have an English accent, we will think you're smart. <laughs> That's just how it goes. But dude, I mean, when you get out in the pubs, it's just, it's no more place in the world than a British pub has taught me that we, in reality, no matter where you are, we're all the same. You know what I mean? They, it's, it's basically uh, the same. We got along really, really good with people in Scotland uh, because in London people didn't necessarily go out of their way to talk to us or engage with us. In Scotland, they were your best friend immediately. They wanted to tell you about their family troubles and their meemaw's bowels, which is a very redneck thing to do, oversharing with a stranger. (laughs) So, yeah, we um, ran into plenty of those, and we loved them so much. And we wrote about them in our upcoming book, Round Here and Over Yonder, that I don't even know why I'm telling you right now, because it's not like it's available for pre-sale or anything. But y'all will be the first ones to know, by the way. Oh, my buddy Eric Rottencrotch says, favorite Taco Bell item, favorite Taco Bell menu item. Man, you have just opened up fucking Pandora's box, buddy. So, if we're going with things that are currently on the menu then I'm going to have to go with the nacho cheese chalupa. It is my go-to. The nacho cheese chalupa and the or nachos bel grande. Here, let me tell you this. I always get, when there's a new Taco Bell thing, I've got to try the new Taco Bell thing, but I always 
as a failsafe, get either a nacho cheese chalupa or a nachos bill grande. That way, if the new thing I got doesn't hit for me, I have a backup. So, I'm... I'm, if it's a tie between Nachos Belgrande and the Chalupa, I have to go with the Chalupa because the Chalupa bread is hands down the best bread, period, in the whole world. I don't give a shit about your the bakery in France that you went to. It doesn't stand up even a little bit to the Chalupa bread from Taco Bell. One of the most angry I've ever been in my life. Chalupa, like Taco Bell is when I first found out about a Chalupa and I was like, oh, it's a taco, but the bread that it's in hits harder. And then I went to a, uh, an actual Mexican restaurant, and I was like, oh, they have chalupas. I want to get one of those. And the bread wasn't the same as Taco Bell's. It's like the one of the only instances of Taco Bell doing it right than Mexican places, and uh, that's my shit. Now, if we're talking about an item that has been taken from us because there is no God, then I'm going to have to go with the zesty chicken bowl, extra zesty sauce. The zesty chicken bowl went the way of the dodo bird around the same time that Butterfinger BBs did, and this fucking world has been worse for it. All right? You want to know, everybody talks about, like, oh, we all our problems in this country because they took prayer out of schools. No, the fuck it's not. It is because Taco Bell got rid of the zesty chicken bowl and Butterfinger got rid of BBs. You don't believe me? Look it up. Look it up. Seriously. Leave this podcast right now and look it up. I don't actually know that they happened around the same time. I'm not looking anything up right now. I'm telling you that I would bet a million dollars it happened at the same time. The whole goddamn country went to shit, and we have been trying our best, crawling against the grain to get back to civility ever since, and have failed. It is a futile attempt until they bring back the zesty chicken bowl and, Lord God willing, the Butterfinger BBs. I also, I think this item has been uh, taken off the menu since, or maybe it got brought back. The cheesy Fiesta potatoes were such a revolution when they came out because it was an item that was not really Mexican. I mean, they are in the sense that they use some, I guess, Mexican spices on the potatoes, but it's like basically... It was like potato skins. You know, it was all the stuff you'd get on potato skins except for in a bowl of potatoes. And that's cheese. My God, dude, there is fake cheese. I love cheese. I'm the biggest cheese guy in the world. And I do love the fancy cheeses. I love a Parmesan with a nice crystallization. I love a brie with a good rind. I love it all. But cheese is one of the things where, like, Almost the faker, the better. You know what I mean? Like, Kraft American cheese just melts better on your burger. Quit being a bougie bitch and putting Vermont cheddar on it when you know that a Kraft single is going to melt better on it. And I feel the same way with the fake nacho cheese. Don't sprinkle real cheese on that son of a bitch. I mean, you can do that, but it also has to have the runny yellow on it. It For dippability... No, it doesn't even taste really like what cheese should taste like. It's basically just a salty, creamy paste, but God damn it, I love it. I'd brush my teeth with it. So my top three Taco Bell items, let's break this down. The Cheesy Fiesta Potatoes, the the uh, uh, Nacho Cheese Chalupa Supreme, and the Nachos Belgrande. So to answer your question, and I have to have one, out of all those, I have to say that my most go-to is the nacho cheese chalupa. It's got the fake cheese that I want. It's got the best bread in the entire world. 
it's a it's a winner. So yeah, there you go. My attorney, my gimmick attorney, Mike Dawkins says, "What is your dream gig?" Um, I sort of went into this a little bit earlier, but like I think that the next chapter of my life, I want it to be. I want to stay at home and raise my kids. And I've been a stand-up comedian. I've now been a stand-up comedian longer than I wasn't a stand-up comedian. I've been doing stand-up for 18 years. If you'd have told me even a year ago that there would be a time in my life when that wasn't the only thing that I was thinking about, I would have laughed you out of the room. Because for my whole life and all my career in stand-up, I've been a purist. My entire pursuit was to be the best comedian that I could be. And I never wanted to be... This is going to sound insane, but I know a lot of people who, like, their dream is to be famous. Like, that's their sole dream. They don't care what it's for. Their dream is to be famous. Mine was never that. Mine was, I mean, I want to be the best comedian I can be, and surely to God, if that comes true, then I will be famous for my work. That's all, that's all I've ever wanted. I want to be recognized for my work, but I don't really give a shit to, like, you know, be on the late night shows all the time or be in magazines. I want to be recognized for my work because I want to put out good work. The good work makes me happy. Being creative makes me happy, and of course, anyone that does anything wants to be recognized for it. But if you'd, if you'd have told me that there was a day where I could genuinely see me putting stand-up comedy, maybe not permanently in the rearview mirror, but at least like temporarily in the rearview mirror, I would have been like, no, what are you talking about? That's how I make my money. That's how I make my living. That's the thing that, in my opinion, I'm the best at. I would have called you crazy. But the pandemic sort of changed I mean, it changed everybody's life for the worse, for sure. And I always get feel a little weird when I say this because, like, this is just a silver lining to an otherwise very shitty thing. The pandemic changed my life for the better. Again, I, I know how terrible that sounds. I'm just talking about an isolated incident because it made me realize things about myself that I would have never realized if I didn't slow down and, and was forced to look around and figure some things out. Like, the pandemic took comedy away from me. It took the only thing I've ever known how to make decent money with away from me. It took my creative outlet away from me. I'm a very expressive person. I feel the need to get my thoughts out there, and it took that away from me. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, the first couple of weeks, dude, I was like, you know, you remember that time before we knew how out of hand it was going to get when we thought like, oh, man, we're good. We're America. We'll knock this shit out in a couple of weeks. And we were all just kind of relaxed, like, yeah, hey, I'll stay at home for a while. You know, a lot of us were like that. Um, before it got real, I was enjoying it. But then when it got real, I was like, dude, you you have to pivot like you know, you can get a you can get a business loan because you are a business, but like that's gonna run out and like you gotta make money. You just bought a house, bro. You just bought a house and your wife is on your ass about having a kid. You gotta pivot. You gotta figure out something to do. And that ended up coming in the form of the buttercream dream and me making a lot more internet videos, which before then I had sworn never to do. Not because I think they're stupid, but that's like that's Trey's thing. That's what he does. That's not what I do. I do stand up. That's what I do. Trey makes the videos and gets famous, and then I open for him, and hopefully people see me and they'll <laughs> respect my work. But it really changed everything, dude. And I started doing more stuff at home, and I was like just as satisfied. Now it's different because like when you tell a joke. In a club, you get that immediate, okay, they're laughing, I know that was good. When you post a video to the internet, you got to wait a couple steps. 
you got to wait a little bit before you see the numbers come in. You know what I'm saying? But you can sort of tell right off the bat. And I start, I sort of started getting addicted to like the views and the likes and the retweets because to me that was like the same as hearing an audience. You know what I'm saying? And it it opened up a new creative valve in my head that I didn't know existed. I thought the only thing I could be good at creatively was stand-up and, of course, writing uh, comedy sketches, which, like, most comedy sketches I've ever wrote were based on a joke that I did, so it's not really that much of a stretch. But doing those videos made me realize, oh, man, I think that I want to do more character work, and I think I want to act more, and doing things from, learning that, hey, there's a whole lot of people out there who, they're not going to go out for a while, and so the, the way to get your shit to them is direct to consumer, put it out on the internet, it just opened up this whole, like, oh my god, dude, you can do anything now, like, I got a, I got a Substack. you're listening to this on the Substack right now, and it's like, you don't have to wait for someone to publish your shit, just put it out there, now granted, who sees it is who knows like you know if you get something published with rolling stone a bunch of people are going to see it if you do it yourself who knows but like if you write something good you know have faith that it'll go viral or 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 whatever but like when i realized like dude you don't have to wait for people to make the stuff that you've wanted to make you can just do it like every single every single idea for a television show that you want to make but these studios you know you get to script and then finally they don't do it dude Fuck that. Turn it into an audio drama, which is something that I'm actively working on right now. Uh, it's going to take a long time because I'm such a, like, I know how to edit audio and stuff, but like, I'm far from a pro. I'm a pro in the sense that I do get paid to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's something that I've only added to my skill set in the past couple of years. But like, I've got so many ideas that I have written as like stories that were going to be TV shows. And I'm like, fuck it. If I can't get them to make it, and I don't have the money to make it myself, I can make it as an audio drama and then use that to pitch. If that's if the audio drama gets popular, hell, they'll make a fucking show out of it or whatever. So I think right now my dream gig is just for parttimefunnyman.com to grow and to get as many subscribers as I can, and that way I can keep it at $5. That's very important to me. Like, obviously the temptation is there to make, like, several different tiers, but, like, this is funny comparing myself to Kenny Chesney, but Kenny Chesney, <laughs> I learned this from him. He all he kept his tickets affordable because he's like the people that have supported me throughout my entire career deserve to be able to see me. And I feel the same way. I don't I think it's like, look, man, it's not like you're selling shirts for five dollars and you're losing money. These are subscriptions. You can give them away and or you can keep them for five dollars. And I you know, I wanna be able to give it away as much as I can. Like I hope that people are able to afford and subscribe for five dollars. But if not, hey man, I want my stuff out there. It's more important to me that my stuff is out there than that I get rich from it. You know what I mean? But I think now my dream gig is staying at home, not being the guy who has the kid that goes, Where's daddy? but still making stuff. Like, turns out my dream was not just being a stand-up comedian. It was being a creative person. And there's a lot different ways to do that. I'm interested in so many facets of the entertainment business. I want to direct documentaries. I want to act. I want to produce audio dramas. I want to have my own production company, which, like, that's what parttimefunnyman.com is for me. It's the launching pad. It's the first step to... Learn how to create your own, again, I hate this word, content, create a network of it, slowly add shows, slowly make them better, 
do audio dramas until all of a sudden you're a functioning entity that is known for making things, and then you have a budget to make film and TV. Because like part of my dream is having a production company because I want to make other people's dreams come true. I want to see somebody just like me, just like Corey Forster, who's going to pitch this idea to a studio that he knows is good and they wanted an idea from him, but then at the end of the day they go, nah, that's too risky for us to do, or the South's not really in right now. I want to be able to look at that kid in the face and go, dude, we're fucking making it. How about that? It might not be a huge success, but I believe in it, and I'll put the money behind it, and we're going to fucking make that shit. Let's go start casting somebody. You know what I mean? I think that would be awesome. Like, I think I want to do more behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, being out and out in front is cool, and I, of course, have an ego, and I'm... But, I don't know, man. There's also a lot of negative that comes with that. Like, I've found that the older I get, the more sensitive I've become. And it's... it's um, I'm learning to deal with it. I've gone to therapy, and therapy's really helped me a lot to be able to compartmentalize things and just be like, listen, man, just because one person criticizes you for this doesn't mean that it's uh, it's true. You know, look at the 99 people, aside from the one that, that really praised your work on this. Can't you think about that? But a lot of that comes with being, you know, out, out in front and center and being in the public eye. I could see myself really wanting to just make things and not, maybe it don't even have my name on it or it just has my production company name on it. I, I can be proud of something without getting all the fanfare, I think. Um, I think. But I think that's the dream gig, is to still be in the entertainment business, but never have to leave my hometown to do it. And I, I, I would still travel and stuff, but like, I want my base to always be my hometown. I never thought I'd say that. I always told my wife, I was like, look, this is going to be a bummer to you, but like, our kid's not going to be raised here. When we have a kid, like, we'll be in Los Angeles or we'll be in New York. Like, our kid's going to be raised in New York because that's where entertainment is. And now I, I'm like, no, man, I, I can't take my kid, even though my kid ain't even here yet, I'm like, I can't take my kid away from its cousins and its grandma and stuff. Like, no, man, it, your job now, fuck everything you've ever wanted to do. Your job is to raise this kid and to have this kid have a wonderful life. And I think it would be best if he was around all his family. And if that means that you're going to have to grind extra hard to have an entertainment career in bumfuck Georgia, then guess what, buddy? You better start grinding. And that's what I want to do. I want to be able to be in my field but be there for my kids. And um, if one of those two things is going to suffer, I want it to be my success in my field, if that makes sense. So, thank you, Dawkins. When will uh, the individual number one is in deep number two on Twitter says, when will Annie Fatneck Jones be back? How will she adapt to the new baby? Uh, we were actually talking... Uh, for those of you that don't know, Annie Fatneck Jones is a dog that I babysit all the time. A lot of people think that it's my dog, and they freak out whenever I talk on Twitter about, this is our last day together. They're like, why are you getting rid of your dog? It's just a dog that we babysit. Their, their parents are very good friends of ours, and I guess we're the godparents of this dog. And, um, yeah, <laughs> every now and then I just call her and go, hey, bring Annie over for a week. And she's always just like, gladly. So I don't know when Annie's coming back, but I did talk to her the other day, and I said, bring her over whenever you want. And uh, so maybe this week, and I will definitely do some videos with Annie. Um, oh, by the way, I, one more question, and then we're going to get out of here, and we'll do a part two because I have to go to a funeral. Uh, Di Jennifer Smith says, Diamond Rio, Little Texas, or Shenandoah? I find that to be a trick question because they all rule. Um, 
Little Texas has one of my favorite songs. Amy's Back in Austin. I love that so much. Diamond Rio has such tremendous harmony. They are a wonderful band. But I have to go with Shenandoah. And here's why. The two songs, Two Dozen Roses and uh, Mama Knows, are unassailable. They are absolutely phenomenal, gut-wrenching songs. And also, Shenandoah's lead singer, who I can't think of his name right now, has a condo in Gulf Shores right next to my father-in-law's, and we've hung out with him and drunk beer, and he's a really, really sweet guy. Y'all don't go looking up shit that finds out he's not a sweet guy and tell me. Just don't let me know, okay? Because he was fucking cool to me. So that was, uh, this has been Ask Corey Anything Part 1. I'll be back Monday with a Part 2. Thank you for all your questions. If you want to go back to Twitter and go to the original thread and get in some last-minute questions, you can. But I've still got about 50 more that we will get to on a later edition. I love you. I will talk to you later. Remember, if you haven't subscribed at the $5 level, I really wish that you would. It would be awesome, and it would help me be able to make more things. But if you can't afford it, remember, if you, I, will, I, will, I can't talk. I'll comp you. Just uh, email buttercreamcory at gmail.com, and I'll take care of you. No questions asked. Y'all have a great day. Take care of yourself. Take care of your brain. And call your mama if she's still there. Love you. Bye. <laughs>